Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. If you'd like to join us this morning, our scripture passage will be from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Uh, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is God's word. Well, we come again, as you notice, to the Gospel of John, and we're coming to the second portion of the Gospel of John that uh, comprises chapters 5 through 11. We've made our way through chapters 1 through 4. We're now in chapters 5 through 11. There's a distinct uh, difference between these two sections. As we enter into it, we notice that Jesus goes public with his miracles, and he goes public as well with his identity, who he is, why he's come, the difference he can make, what it means to put your faith in him, and what it means to not put your faith in him. And so what we see is in chapters one through four, where there's hesitation and reservation about Jesus, in chapters five through 11, there's straight out opposition to Jesus as more and more he makes who he is known to those who are watching him. And so it's important for us to see that as we come to this story that launches this public ministry of Jesus. Now, this is one of those stories that has so much in it that I, I feel like I need three hours to preach this to you. So rather than tell you in advance, I'm just letting you know now, this is gonna be a longer sermon. Or not, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's try to put three hours into 40 minutes. Can we try that? All right. 
this is so important. Listen, listen. There are some, there are some, re, some truths in this passage that somebody in your life needs for you to understand and recognize and own. There are some truths in this, in this story that someone who is in your life desperately needs for you to know and understand it because they are already in this story. Some of them are, are in part of this story. Some of them are going to live this story. Some of them are going to come out of a similar story and wind up in a place that is not best for them. And they need for you to hear and understand this story and all that it's conveying to us. There's so much here that I'm going to move very, very quickly. I want you to stay with me because this this is a powerful, powerful story. Now, let's talk about the story. Let's look at the setting right out, right out of the gate. This is a story that takes place in two locations and it has four sets of characters, if you will. Those two locations are these. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem for a festival. We're not told what the festival is. He's making his way into Jerusalem for a festival. And uh, he makes his way, the scripture says, by a particular place on his way to the temple, which is our second location. That place is called Bethesda. Bethesda means house of mercy, house of mercy. It's a place of healing with a pool. Several scholars suggest that the pool consists of, of um, it, it consists really of, of, of a, a large pool about the size of a football field with a colonnaded porch all the way around the edges and a porch that goes right down the center, probably to, sell, to separate men from women. And underneath those porches, there gathered uh, all kinds of sick people, the infirmed, the lame, the, the invalids, the blind, all kinds of people would gather there and would gather underneath those porches. And the idea was that when the water stirred in the pools, it was evidence that something supernatural or magical was happening. And whoever could get into the water when the water stirred, whoever could get into the water first would find healing. That was the promise of the pool at Bethesda. They would find healing or they would find Mercy. There was a. There was some some uh, pagan thought behind this. It, it was a, a healing kind of uh, a ritual place. It had a little bit of veneer of of Judaism over it, so that if you were a Jew, you could be there and kind of get away with it. But it really had nothing to do with the God uh, who was the God of the temple, which is the second place where this story takes place. The great temple of Yahweh, the temple representing the God uh, who is the God of mercy. Now, the, 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 again, as I say, the festival, we don't know what it was. We don't know which festival it was. It doesn't matter because the point of the story is that the God of the temple did for a man what the waters of Bethesda could never do. That's the point of the story. Now, there are four characters, four main characters. There's a man who's been lame for 38 years, nearly four decades. There's Jesus, God's son at work. There's God the Father who is at work. And then there's a collective character known as the Jews, a group of religious leaders who are outraged because of a breach in Sabbath regulations. And so this story and its characters actually present us with a really good look at the human problem, the divine response to that problem, and some lessons that every generation of believers needs to learn. 
So let's look at those together. This is what you and I got to get our heads around for the sake of a very specific group of people in our lives. Let's look first of all at the human problem. There are three examples or three explanations of the human problem. One comes from the lame man, one comes from the Jews, one comes from Jesus. But before we look at that, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been so frustrated with another person that you couldn't help but say to them, what's your problem? Have you ever had that experience? Somebody who just consistently gets life wrong, they're constantly doing damage to themselves or constantly doing damage to you and you get so frustrated with them that you wind up going, what's your problem? Or what you're really saying is, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Now, the reason we don't typically say that to other people is because the truth of the matter is, if we're not careful, they'll shoot the very same question right back at us and we don't have a very good answer. Well, what's wrong with you? I, yeah, We're tempted to ask it, but it, it, it shows something that we all know to be true, but we struggle with. Something really is wrong with humanity. The billion dollar question is, what is it exactly? Governments, politicians, activists, academics, they all have ideas about what's wrong with us and they suggest things that could help us do better, be better, do all of that. The problem is nobody gets the answer exactly right. Have you ever noticed that every time we try to come up with an answer, we wind up so very often making things worse? We know we have a problem. We have ideas about what, what it is, but we aren't exactly clear on what it is. And so you'll notice in this story, we've got two very common explanations of that human problem and then one that comes from Jesus. Look at verses six and seven. Look at the human problem and its solution as most individuals see it, represented by a, by a lame man. The scripture says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him and said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, I want you to notice something curious here. Jesus launches this story with a question that uh, is an odd question. He says to the man, do you want to be healed? It should be obvious. He's at Bethesda. He's, he's at a healing shrine. He's at a healing shrine with literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other lame people, invalids, blind people. I mean, everybody who was hurting and broken was there. It was pretty obvious. If anybody knew anything about Bethesda, the house of mercy, they would know why he was there. Yes, the answer is yes, I want to be healed. This, this man has been waiting for nearly four decades. Of course, I've been here. I've been waiting. Makes us wonder though. It should make us wonder. Why, what is Jesus really after here with that question? Why is he asking the question at all? The truth is that there's something more going on here. It's found not in the word healed, but it's actually found in the phrase be healed. And Jesus is saying, are you willing to be healed? Are you willing to be made whole by another way, by another person? Jesus is asking, do you want to be made truly well? He's asserting, if so, another's going to have to do it. It's going, you're going to have to find it in a different place from this one. This place is not what you think it is. Are you open to it? 
The man doesn't fully answer. He doesn't perhaps understand Jesus' question. He assumes that the answer is obvious, yes. And maybe he thinks, I don't know, that Jesus is, is, is saying he's not trying hard enough, that he's not doing enough when the water stirs. Why, why have you been laying here for 38 years, the water stirs, and you never get in? What's your problem? He might be thinking Jesus is asking him. Now, I want you to notice something with me. This man has the desire to be healed. He has the faith he can be healed. It's faith in the promise of a magical or a supernatural healing brought by Bethesda's waters when they stir. It's kind of superstitious, but he's got faith. A problem he has as well. He has a problem being healed. He can get himself moving toward the waters, but he has no one with him who can actually help him move more quickly when the waters stir. He can, he can crawl. But by the time the water stirs and he starts crawling, somebody else who has good legs actually gets in and he never does. So he says, yeah, I, I want to be made well. The, the pool's right there. I, I've got the promise right there. I, I can do it. I just need a little help to make it happen when, when my lucky break comes. So notice then, as this man see it, sees it, his biggest problem is physical and then relational, but solvable. It's physical and then relational, but solvable. He has a problem, he can't walk, but he has a plan. If I could just get somebody to help me get into the water, it'll work, and he has a promise. And the promise is the promise of the pool. Water stirs up, you get in it, you get healed. That's the promise. If he could just find someone to help, Together, they can tap into the power of the promise of the pool. And then he will be healed and made whole. And then he will really finally live. Now, what I want you to see is that in so many respects, this is the kind of answer most of us come up with when we face our humanity and we face its limits. We see a problem, we devise a plan, and, and then we find a promise from some pool. Some pool out there that says, I, I, I can help you. I will help you. This will help you. The solution for our human problems is fundamentally a combination of human ability and faith in something greater than ourselves. You know what that is right now in our day and age, right? It's technology. Our pool is technology. If you and I can just get together, if we can just sort things out and help each other, we're smart enough to take and use technology to, save, to solve every problem that humanity has. Technology is, is our pool of Bethesda. We can do it. Technology can help. It's greater than we are. And uh, that's, that's, that's all we need. I, I read a, an article. I probably shouldn't share this with you, but I read an article. I think it was from the Wall Street Journal where a guy was writing and he said, you know, really, he said, you shouldn't recycle. How many of you recycle? I know at our house, we recycle. We recycle religiously though. We, yeah, but we, we recycle. At our house, we recycle. And so I'm reading this article and this guy says, I don't know why you're recycling. And I'm saying, well, we're trying to, you know, be, you know, from a Christian standpoint, we're trying to be good stewards of the planet and not mess it up any more than we already have. And uh, so, you know, that's my answer. Others are trying to save the planet and all this. I, I, you know, but anyway, so I'm reading this article and the guy says, you know, basically, why, are you, why do you do that? It's, you're wasting time. Look, he says, no municipality, no government agency knows what to do with all the stuff you send to be recycled. 
They especially don't know what to do with the plastic, so they bundle it up. They, sh they send it to a third world country who then takes it, burns it, pollutes the air, or dumps it somewhere, melts it down, and it runs off into rivers and causes even a worse problem. Now, I don't know what you're gonna do with that. I, I don't know what I'm doing with it either. I'm still throwing stuff in the recycling bin, but I'm really wondering now, am I helping or am I hurting? Am I sending all this to some little country that's just gonna burn it and, and make things worse? I don't know. I don't know, but this is what I do know. Every time we come up with a solution to one of our problems, we seem to make things worse. We seem to make things worse. We've got a promise we get from some pool, but it never really tends to work out. The solution for our human problems, so many of us think is fundamentally a combination of human ability and faith in something greater than us. If God has ever factored in at all, he's only seen from a distance. If the pool of promise heals, maybe it's because he allows it to, but he's only involved in the background. We can find a way. We can tap into a promising answer for any and all of our physical problems and bless ourselves if we work together to, to work the promising answer. Now, what that does is it puts a whole lot of confidence in humanity and its abilities and its motives and intentions. And I have to ask, is that wise? Is that wise? I was in Atlanta this last weekend to uh, perform a niece's wedding and Cheryl and I found a gluten-free bakery. And anytime we find a gluten-free bakery, it's a law of the Medes and Persians. We must go. So if we're ever traveling and we find a gluten-free bakery, I mean, it's just, it's, we don't vote on it. We just get in the car. Oh, I found a gluten-free bakery. We get in the car. And then we, we, we wait with great anticipation at whatever they will have because, you know, some people can do gluten-free really well and some people, well, they're just pretending. So we go into a part of Atlanta that is very hip, very progressive, all of those kinds of things. And uh, I was so surprised though, when we pulled up to this gluten-free bakery, there's a big sign on the side of the building right next to where you pull up. I was absolutely shocked. I'm gonna show it to you. I've got my faith, there it is. <laughs> now, don't you know, there's a story behind that sign. Either the guy that owns the building or the gal who owns the building or whoever leases the building, they came in one day, they went to work, they parked the car, they went to work, they came back and something valuable had disappeared from their car. And they know that squirrels, cats and dogs don't take valuable things out of cars. People do. And so this was their conclusion. Now, I guarantee you, this was not a Calvinist who believes in total depravity who put that sign on the, on the side of the wall. That was not, this was not the neighborhood for Calvinists. It might've been for total depravity, I don't know, but it was not a, it's not a neighborhood where Calvinists would go. So there's a story here, but there's a reality here. And that is we know something's wrong with us. And every now and then a gluten-free bakery will admit it. Just every now and then, every now and then. It points to, in the direction of something that the Bible affirms and that we have a hard time admitting about ourselves. And that, that is this, humanity's solution is not humanity. Humanity's problem is humanity. Humanity's solution is not humanity. Humanity's problem is humanity. It's only humans that steal valuables out of cars and deceive and lie and murder and maim and torture each other 
So, so Jesus' odd question actually intimates something important. He, it infers that this man's problem is actually deeper and greater than he thinks. It's more than physical. It's more than lacking another to help him get his promise from the pool. He, he needs a healing. He needs a wholeness that has to be given to him. It's not one that he can give to himself, even with help. There's more to it than, than legs that don't work. The questions are, will he get honest? Will he be open to his real problem? Will he be honest about the pool he's resting by and the water he's trusting in? I mean, 38 years is a long time to sit by a pool and have no benefit. How long will you sit by the pool and complain that you don't have somebody to help you till you wake up and, and realize maybe that's just a pool with just water and nobody's really getting help? That's just a false promise. I don't want you to lose that picture because I want you to understand something. We're all living by a pool. We're all living by a pool. It's got some kind of water that we think will heal us, help us. We're all living by a pool. The question is, what pool are we living by? There's a reason why Jesus said over and over again, I, 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 I have living water. We're all living by some kind of pool. So is he going to be honest about this pool? Will, will he see, will he consider God as his true solution? Now, that leads us to the second group. There, there are some people ready to help him with that question in particular. Uh, in the form of the Jews, and they're introduced to us in verse 10. Do you see them? John's using the term here to refer to Judaism and its official leaders in Jerusalem. They defend, they depend on the letter of God's law, and these Jews and their response to the man represent the human problem and the solution as most religions see it. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. Verse 9, and at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was a Sabbath and that's a problem. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It isn't lawful for you to take up your bed. Now the, the, the Sabbath was an important part of the Jewish faith and practice. And it, it was and is an important part of God's plan as well. Um, in Exodus 20, 8 to 10, it, it's, uh, it winds up the fourth of the Ten Commandments, which, which says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or any of your livestock, or even the sojourner who is within your gates. Everybody is to rest on the seventh day. The spirit behind that law was that humanity needs physical and spiritual rest, and the only way you're going to get it is by setting aside a day. And it is because we need it that God created the Sabbath day of rest for us. Jesus would say in Mark that uh, the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Man wasn't made to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to serve man because man needs a rest. From all, women need a rest from all their labors. Jesus declared himself Lord of the Sabbath as well. So it's because of one of the 10 core commandments of God 
has been broken that they're so, so uh, excited. Anything that smelled like work on the Sabbath meant that these Jewish leaders would get on top of it, especially during a festival in Jerusalem. And so like the religious police, they quote the uh, regulation, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up uh, your bed. These religious leaders aren't acknowledging what has happened. The man tells them he's been healed and the one who healed him told him to do the, car the carrying. But even when they hear that news, ironically, they ignore the Sabbath healing and focus on the Sabbath violation. Without knowing it, what they're saying is, it isn't lawful for God to be God and do that kind of work on a Sabbath. So they're actually charging God with violating his own will, though they don't realize it because they haven't paused to see what's happening. They should have known better. They could have known better. This kind of healing only comes from God. God may have rested on the seventh day of creation, but it was as an example because we, not he, need the rest from work and the reminder that our time is his. So God the Father and God the Son, Jesus says later, look at verse 17, we're always working in this world. My father's always at work, I'm always at work. We work on the Sabbath. Why? We're not human beings who need the rest. Well, the man deflects blame from himself to the man who healed him. Look at verse 11, and it works. In verse 12, the Jews want to know who, not who healed him, but who actually told him to pick up his mat and carry it on the Sabbath? Who told him to work? I, you know, I kind of wonder, I don't know that that was so much work as that might've been an act of worship and an act of praise. Look, I've been laying around for four decades and now that mat's been under me and now I've got that mat under my arm. He could have said, he should have said, only God could have done that. Praise God, I've got a mat under my arm on the Sabbath. But no, nobody's seeing this. The man's not seeing it. The, the Jews aren't seeing it. He deflects the blame. The real problem, according to these Jews, the real human problem is failure to give God what he wants. And this means the loss of the life that is blessed by him. And they're right to a point. What they get wrong is what God wants. The reason we don't have the life we, we, uh, we should have is because we are not giving God uh, what he desires. And of course, because he's a good God, what he desires is what's best for us. But what they get wrong is what God wants. They think that what, God's want, what God wants are hands that obey. But what God says in the Old Testament is that he wants first uh, hearts that are holy, that are without sin, hearts that have love for him and show mercy and grace to others. In Hosea 6, he says, I desire mercy, steadfast love, and a knowledge of me over any sacrifice, over any ritual. What I'm really concerned about first is your heart, not your hands. So this blessed life for the Jews is a matter of religious performance. The blessed life for God is a matter of heart transformation. And so the human self-help of, of the lame man and the religious self-righteousness of the Jews, they aren't exactly the same, but they're cousins, if you will. Both call on humanity to do more and try harder. One seeks to bless and save itself. The other seeks to earn a place of salvation and blessing for self from God. But what God really wants the reality is humanity can't give. What God wants from us, God has to give to us. 
And he has, and that's why we see finally the, the human problem is only Jesus can see it. Notice verse 14. Afterward, the scripture says, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus seeks the man out. He declares him well, pointing as he does back to his original question in verse six, do you want to be made truly well? He gives the man a final command. He says, sin no more. And then he gives him a good reason for doing so. He says that something worse may uh, may not happen to you. Sin no more. That refers to bringing an end to a habitual attitude or a way of thinking that leads to sin. This man, like all of us, has habitually gone his own way, has done his own thing without respect to God. And now God in Christ has shown him mercy with healing. And because of this, the only wise course is to stop sinning, for sin always has great consequences attached to it, greater than lameness for four decades. Jesus is essentially saying, you think four decades of lameness is bad? You don't have a clue how bad the consequences of living with an habitual attitude of sin, uh, how bad they really are. Now that this man has had this encounter with Jesus, now that he has been given this great undeserved mercy of healing, there will be even greater consequences for his sin if he doesn't stop. The idea here is this, the human problem is at its root spiritual and not physical and not relational. Human sin is the human problem. It's rooted in self-centered habits that make us who we are. Sin has serious consequences. Now you all know that. But we've got to go a little deeper into that. I love what Ray Steadman says, how he describes sin this, in this way. He says, we've, we've been infected with a fatal virus that causes everything we do to turn out wrong. The biblical point of view is that this is the problem of the whole human race. Man is not what he was made to be. He doesn't function the way he ought to. Even our efforts toward good merely create new problems. The problem, the Bible declares, is sin. That is selfishness, self-centeredness. And it is this sin that deforms us and ultimately damages and keeps us from the true wellness that comes in a relationship and in fellowship with God. Uh, there's this powerful self-diagnosis that I think every believer needs to understand and if we can understand this, we're going to understand those people that are in our life who keep, her, who keep making poor choices, who frustrate us to death, who constantly are hurting themselves or constantly hurting others, constantly making poor choices, constantly going in the wrong direction. Those people that we're most likely to say, to turn to and say, what is wrong with you? Why can't you see? Why don't you understand? Why do you keep doing the same stuff over and over again? Why? Those people. There's a self-diagnosis. If you have your Bible, look with me at 1 Timothy 1, verses 13 to 15. It helps us tremendously to understand the, that the heart of our human problem is the human heart. Paul explains his own sin problem this way. This is what he says. I used to be, formerly, he says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent of Jesus himself. But I received mercy from Christ because for two reasons. I had acted ignorantly and I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me in spite of that. 
There, there was a mercy for me in spite of that. There was, there was a, a, a grace for me in spite of that. And it showed up with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul's problem and ours, the real human problem is summed up in two ways. We say, yeah, our problem is sin and selfishness. Yeah, but it, it go deeper. Paul says it, it really can be summed up as ignorance or a lack of a proper full knowledge uh, or awareness of God as he really is, a lack of a proper full knowledge of, of what God really wants something that Jesus came to correct and something called unbelief. Now, unbelief takes two forms. First, it comes as a failure to trust and have confidence in God as he is. And that comes from a lack of an understanding of who he is and what he desires. Now, I'm gonna pause and say this. Listen, the scripture says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The, the scripture says in Romans 2 that we all have written in our hearts the basic law of God and an understanding that God exists, that none of us is going to escape, none of us can escape the consequences of our sin because here's the reality. The reality is we all know in our heart of hearts that there is right and there is wrong and there is a God who stands behind what is right and there is wrong. And we may try to twist it and distort it, but we all know none of us is going to be able to stand before God on that final day and say, God, I just really didn't know you were there or God, I just really didn't know that stealing was wrong. I just really didn't know that lying was wrong. I just really didn't know. None of us is gonna be able to say that. Yet at the same time, the scripture teaches, you look at Numbers, for example, 21. The scripture teaches that there are two forms of unbelief. One is, is an unbelief that issues in a, in a that, that comes about and produces uh, uh, unwitting sin or unintentional sin. And then there's a form of unbelief that produces intentional sin. And they're both related to what we do about, do with what we know about what God wants and, and what God is like. When we, there are those who fail to trust God and have confidence in him as he is and to give what he wants in part because they don't have a full or complete understanding of who he is. That's why Jesus came and he said, I am the light of the world. I came, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So here, I want you to know, this is what God is like. Look at me, this is what God is like. Look at me, this is what God wants. Listen to me, this is what God wants. His goal then was to take those who had twisted God with the basics that they knew, give them light to see God as he really is and what God really wants so that they would turn and come after him. That was his goal. Of course, there are those, and we're seeing an example of this in our story, who, who yes, like everybody else, uh, started out with a basic knowledge of God, twisted it up, they hear the truth, they see the truth as it is in Jesus, they hear the truth as it is in, De as it is in Jesus, and, and rather than uh, uh, a, uh, a failed uh, uh, trust in God because they don't understand him, they in turn, having heard the truth, put up a deliberate resistance to trust and confidence in God as he is and based upon what he wants because they basically say no to him all right, I hear the truth, but I say no. 
here the, the lame man doesn't know who Christ is and hasn't heard his teaching on who he is and why he has come. The Jewish leaders have had limited encounters with Jesus and his self-explanations, but the more Jesus explains his miracles, the more he connects the dots in terms of who he is as the Son of God, as he does in our chapter, the more culpable those who hear the truth are. Neither fully understand yet, but notice, we don't hear another word about this, about this lame man. Jesus comes to him and says, look, 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 look. You've been blessed with mercy. You've been healed. You've been made whole. It's time for you to stop sinning. Stop with this habitual attitude that says, I am not going to do anything except what I want to do. What Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to point him to the help that he needs and the God who is ready to help him. He disappears. He throws Jesus under the bus and says, I've got his name. This is the guy. And he disappears. Not a lot of hope for him, but notice the, the Jewish leaders as well. Jesus addresses them. He explains why he did what he did. He said, my father is always at work and I too am, am working. And the scripture says, look at verse 18, that after Jesus addresses who he is and what he's about, the Jews persecute and try to kill him. Why? Verse 18, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You know, we often say a person doesn't know what they don't know. And there's a measure of truth in that, especially for those who are lost. And, and though we are all guilty before God and under his wrath to be sure because of our sin. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And, and while all of us know enough about God and his law written on our hearts to be found guilty of rebelling against him, and none of us will have an excuse before him on that last day, the facts of, of universal human ignorance and unbelief when it comes to God as he is means that as believers in a dark and a dying world, We've got to remember that our great need and at the same time, the great need of the lost is to understand that God as he is, has come in Christ, that what God wants, he's made plain in Christ so that the unbelief that is present in us as a failure to trust and have confidences in God because we don't fully understand him that these things should be shared with them so that it can be changed with clarity around the gospel. If we're followers of Jesus, we've got to partner with God in Christ. God in his mercy is trying to awaken people who will not hear what he has to say. Sometimes he'll do this with trials that he allows into their lives. This man's lameness might be another person's cancer or failing marriage, but we, we must join him in this work by showing and telling the lost of Christ, by showing and telling them the why and the how of his cross and his resurrection. We've got to give them every opportunity to go from disbelief to belief. We've got to give them every opportunity to, to, to have their ignorance uh, removed so that they can turn to God, not as they think he is, not as they might imagine him to be, but to God as he is in Christ. We, we need to give them every person on the planet deserves an opportunity to hear what God really wants and to know that what God really wants wants from them, God will make 
present and give to them in Christ. You can't give it to God by yourself, but God will give it to you through his son. Every person on the planet deserves to hear that. Every single one. And every one of those people in your life that you want to go, what's your problem? Why do you keep doing the same stuff over and over again? Why do you keep visiting that same crazy pool? It's not helping you. Why do you keep going back? Every single one of them, we need to see them as God sees them, as Paul describes them. There's some ignorance going on and there's some unbelief. It's the same ignorance and unbelief you and I had before we came to Christ. If we are less ignorant, it's because of Jesus. If we believe now, it's because of Jesus. We're not on a higher plane. We're on the same level. God's just done a work in us, but we've got to see people this way. They need for us to see them that way. There are some lame people who will just stay lame because Jesus will show up, they'll see him, they'll understand he has power, and they'll still walk away. But look at Acts 3. There are some lame people who will encounter the good news of Jesus. Their ignorance will be conquered. Their unbelief will be turned to belief. And they'll be found walking and leaping and praising God. But it's our job, our responsibility, our great opportunity. With every impossible person that God allows to come into our lives. To show them Jesus. Point them to him. Now, y'all want some good news? You want some, 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 we want to end on a good note? We got another two hours and um, five minutes. So it's, I got time. You got time? All right. I got to try to squeeze those two hours into about five and a half minutes. Can we do it? Can we squeeze in some good, some good news right there? Can we do that? Can we do that? Okay, sit up over there. Let's go. Here we go. All right. I want you to see the divine response to the human problem. It's threefold and it's beautiful. God's response in Christ to our human condition is modeled by Christ's response to this man who actually walks away from him, but the pattern is still there. There's a love that comes. There's a mercy that acts. There's a grace that seeks. There's a love that comes. There's a mercy that acts. There's a grace that seeks. Notice how Jesus displays in verse six. Let's go back through the story quickly. Notice how Jesus displays a love that comes to see and share our condition. I love this. Verse six, Jesus saw the man lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. And he said to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made truly well? What a powerful, beautiful picture of our God. He goes where the lame man is. 
He sees him, he knows him, he finds him, and, and it proves that the man is not alone. Listen, nobody wanted to be at Bethesda. No healthy person wanted to be at Bethesda. Nobody wanted to be at Bethesda, especially on a feast day. Nobody wants to be around smelly, dirty, crippled people who can do nothing for you gathered as they are, laying down as they are in their own filth because they can't take care of themselves. Nobody wants to be at Bethesda. Nobody does, but I'm telling you this, Jesus does because Jesus is love and where hurting people are, Jesus shows up. Where hurting people are, Jesus shows up. Jesus is the one who finds prostitutes and tax collectors and drunks and the sexually immoral and the lonely and little children. And he takes all of them and he draws them into his circle of love with forgiveness. The scribes and the Pharisees, oh, they were willing, ready, and able to stone these people with very few questions asked. But Jesus is different. Jesus is different. He is love come to seek and save the lost by seeing and sharing our condition. He comes to wherever our pool is, and he meets us there. Every true follower of Jesus in this room, right here, right now, you got your own story of your own pool and Jesus meeting you where you were. If you don't have that story, you may not have Jesus because we all got our pools. We've all got our places of false water we were living for, drinking from, and trying to, to make, make our lives make sense with. But God in Jesus showed up. Mm, mm, mm. Watch out, I'm going to preach here in a minute but I've only got two left. I want you to see that there's not only a love that comes, that there's a mercy that acts. Look at verses eight and nine. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus displays a mercy that acts to change our condition. Jesus is not only love on display, but Jesus is also mercy at work. Love on display, mercy at work. Love on display, mercy at work. And, and in his work, he's attacking the whole power of evil seen in our sickness and our sin. And here by his healing, Jesus turns the man toward faith in himself as the savior who delivers from evil. He gives the man a chance to believe by an act of sheer mercy. And Jesus does this repeatedly. He, look through the gospels and you'll find Jesus reaching out to heal the sick, restoring the crippled, giving sight to the blind, giving hearing to the deaf, raising the dead to life. Jesus shows up with love and then he starts fixing up with mercy. He meets us in our condition and begins to change that condition. Mercy is from an ancient word that gives us the words beneficial and charitable. Mercy gives help to the afflicted and rescues the helpless. Mercy is compassion in practical action. Mercy is compassion in practical action. 
Mercy doesn't condemn, mercy gives. Mercy gives food to the hungry, comfort to the grieving, acceptance to the rejected, forgiveness to the offending, and companionship to the lonely. Mercy meets the needs it finds in people, so the door for grace is open for the sins that are also found there. Mercy is the door to the grace that saves. The love that shows up is the door to the mercy that works to help, and the mercy that works to help opens the door to the grace that saves. If you want to see people come to faith in Christ, show up in love, show mercy with with good works, and wait for the opportunity it will come to share the gospel of God's grace. That's the solution. That's the way Christ works. And loved ones, that's the way the church of Jesus Christ is meant to work. We're meant to show up. We're meant to show mercy with acts of kindness and we're meant to be ready to declare the good news of the gospel of grace. I was in in Atlanta this past weekend, as I said, and a man came up to me and he said, I can't get into the shelter because I don't have $12. And I said to him, let me get my wallet. I pulled out and gave him 12 bucks. And I said, I hope you get into the shelter, that you get a good night's sleep. And he said he was going to Indiana or somewhere. I don't know. He told me a story. I didn't care about the story, but I did say to him, God loves you, man. And I want you to know that. And I'm doing this because he loves you. Here's 12 bucks. I got in the car. I went somewhere else. And it wasn't too long before I saw him on the street corner getting money for some more people. I don't care because I know that the door to grace, the grace that saves, is the mercy that helps, is the love that shows up. So I've got to show up. I've got to be merciful with good deeds and kindness in order to point people to Christ and ultimately share the good news of the gospel of grace. Does that make sense to you? Does that make sense to you? I got to quit. Does that make sense to you? I'm out of time, but does that make sense to you? Because look, 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 that's what Jesus did. Look, look, look. That's what Jesus did. Am I right? Am I right? And if Jesus looked like love on display, mercy at work, and a grace that saves, shouldn't we? I'm serious, shouldn't we? God help us. At last count, I've got about four of those kinds of people in my life. Sitting by the wrong pool, doing the wrong things, making a mess of their lives. I don't know how many you've got. I'm going to tell you, it's not easy having them in your life. Because they don't listen. They don't make good decisions. They're constantly getting into trouble. And you want to throw your hands up and say, forget you. 
until you remember that Jesus never looked at you when you wouldn't listen and you wouldn't yield and you kept making poor decisions. He never threw up his hands and said, forget you. He never did. What did he do? He kept showing up with love. He kept acting out with mercy. And he kept reaching out with grace. And I'm asking you, is that not what we are called to do? As individual believers and as a church, is that not what we're called to do? And the answer is yes, it is. See, it's not enough to come here on Sunday morning and sit in a chair. I'm glad you're here. I want you to come back, all that. You know that. It's important. It's God's will for your life. You know that. I'm not going to say any more about it, except this is not all there is. There's a world out there that needs to know. There is a love that does not fail, a mercy that does not fall, and a grace that can really save. And we are called to put all of that on display. Okay, I'm sorry, I gotta apologize. My three-hour sermon went four minutes and 54 seconds over. I like him, but I gotta quit. Father, the time is urgent. People are hurting. Eternity is a long time. So many, many people have never seen love like yours, have never known mercy like yours, have never seen grace like yours. Whatever else they need or don't need, they need these three things. They need to see them. They need a chance to know that there is such a God. They need to know. They need a chance to say yes or no to you on the basis of who you really are, not the twisted up version they've made of you. Oh God. Please help us to see ourselves differently as recipients of love and mercy and grace. Help us, Lord God, to see a broken world, broken people, laying around these pools as people who need your love, your mercy, your grace. Make us a church. I pray, God, of love, of mercy, of grace. You are our only hope. You are our only answer for our great human problem. Please. Do a fresh work in us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.